Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host. And in today's podcast, well, it's werewolf time. It's Strixwitch time. Strixwitch being a specific type of witch, very much created by the Romans, very much a Roman phenomenon. And in this podcast, we're going to be talking you through a series of stories from antiquity which mention either one or both of these creatures from ancient history. And joining me to talk through these stories, going from Circe and Greek myths all the way down to Imperial Rome and Petronius's Satyricon, I was delighted to get on the show Professor Daniel Ogden from the University of Exeter. Daniel has recently written a new book all about the werewolf in antiquity. He's also written books on the Strixwitch. I believe he's also written a book about dragons in the ancient world. This guy has picked an awesome area of ancient history to dedicate his academic life to. Now, we did have some issues with the audio whilst editing this podcast, but our heroic editor, Pete, he has edited this episode as best he can. There are some really, really interesting stories, so I do hope you enjoy it nonetheless. And without further ado, here's Daniel to talk all about the werewolf in the ancient world. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Delighted to be here. Now, move over, medievalists. We see the werewolf in the ancient Mediterranean world. That's right, yeah. And first of all, Daniel, of all these mythical creatures, why the werewolf? Well, I think really the question is why not the werewolf? Because werewolves are ancient and they are persistent features of Western folklore. So given that that is the case... It's something that has to be argued for, but that is the case. Then, of course, we're going to find them in the ancient world. It certainly is a really cool topic and a really unique book to write, I must admit. So let's dive into one of these most extraordinary passages from the ancient literature that we have. Also one of the most amazing. Daniel, first of all, what is Petronius's Satyricon? Petronius's Satyricon is a Latin novel, or I should say what we have of it is a fragment of it. Now, if you go into a good bookshop, you can buy um, a Pegwood Classic. It's a sort of regular-length book called Petrinus' Satyricon, and it's a good read. In, in some ways, a challenging read because it's very elusive in many ways. But what you might not initially realise when you get hold of that book is, in fact, it's only something like an eighth of the original novel. So the original novel was Titanic, something like War and Peace. And we just have this chunk of it, which is actually, you know, a decent-length novella, frankly, still. 
Uh, we have a few fragments, but mainly what we have is one chunk. The central boss and highlight of that chunk is the narrative of a dinner party, which is thrown by a sort of a grotesquely tasteless uh, nouveau riche freedman, a freed slave who's made his own packet. And he thinks he knows everything. He thinks he's got all the culture down. But in fact, he doesn't know anything at all. Um, he gets all his literature and all his mythology mixed up. And so Petronius has a lot of fun at this character's expense. And in the middle of this dinner party, Trimalchio himself, he's the host, and a fellow freedman called Nicaros exchange a couple of stories. Uh, and they're what you might call campfire horror stories. And the tone of these, I should say, is rather different in many ways to all the text around them. And they're kind of like stand out as their own little thing, really. They're two very, very good stories. There is a sort of comic aspect to the way they're told and presented. And Petronius, as he's a very sophisticated writer, is playing some sort of literary games. But nonetheless, despite all that, you know, what we have here are two fantastic, clearly very typical tales from Roman folklore. So also one of them is about, is about the were- Nicaros's tale is about the werewolves. The werewolf, I should say. And Trimalchio's own tale is about some witches, a category of witch called the Strix Witch. Wow. I mean, the Strix Witch, we'll definitely get onto that in a bit, I'm sure. But the story of the werewolf in this text by the freedman, what is the story with the werewolf? Right. Well, it might be simpler just to read out. I thought you might ask about <laughs> this. I won't read the whole thing, but um, just to set it up. So Nicaros, as I say, is telling a story back from his youth. Obviously, he's an older man now. And he's telling how one night, the setting is not entirely clear, somewhere in Campania, not very specific about the details. He tells how he set out with a soldier friend who was staying with his master. He was still a slave himself at this point. And he set out to make a, a visit to his girlfriend, Melissa, who had a pub and a farm. I guess it was a, you know, an elaborate tavern. And I guess they, you know, they kept the animals that they need to sell to their, their customers. Anyway, so... He's talking about making the trip by night. And from now on, I'm going to just read out my own translation of Petronius' story. Absolutely no problem. The moon was shining like the midday sun. Now I have the moon already there. The moon was shining like the midday sun. We arrived among the roadside tombs. My man went for a pee against the gravestone. I held back, singing and counting the stones. Then, when I looked back at my companion, he'd taken all his clothes off and laid them down beside the road. I almost died of fright. He peed a circle around them and suddenly became a wolf. He began to howl and ran into the woods. At first I didn't know where I was, but then I went to his clothes to pick them up. They'd turned to stone. Whoever died of fright, if I didn't then. But I drew my sword and hacked at the ghosts until I arrived at my girlfriend's house. If you'd come earlier, she said, at least you would have helped us, for a wolf got into the estate. He was draining the blood out of the flocks like a butcher. And even if he got away, the last laugh was ours, for our slave managed to get a spear through his neck. When I heard this, I couldn't even think of sleep, but when it was fully light, I ran off home. My soldier was lying on his bed like an ox, and the doctor was tending to his neck. I realised that he was a skin changer, a versicalis, and I couldn't thereafter bring myself to taste bread with him. Wow. That's quite a story. And for the words that he uses for this time, is this quite a unique story mentioning a werewolf? Well, there aren't that many stories from the ancient world. One of the jobs I've given myself in this book is to try to not only collate, as it were, such obvious stories as do remain, 
but try to reconstruct others that might have existed through allusions in other texts. And I suppose there's probably about four or five decent stories we might talk about. This story in itself, as I say, it's a complex text. I mean, you know, one can enjoy it just as a pure romp, and one should. But it is a complex text, as one can see if one reads between the lines. So, for example, that very last line of the story was, you know, and I realised he was a werewolf because of the very common motif in medieval werewolf stories, and indeed early modern ones, the motif of the identifying wound. Okay, the wolf got a wound through its neck, this man has a wound in his neck, therefore he's the werewolf. But it's a bizarre detail in this story, given that he had already seen the guy turn into a wolf. So um, we get the sense that, in fact, there's a whole world of folkloric werewolf stories out there with a sort of recurring set of motifs. I'm sure Petronius has done this knowingly. In a sense, he's trying to undermine the narrator of the story. But nonetheless, in working with material he has, he's shown us that there's a whole world of these stories out there with their common, familiar, comfortable motifs that a, a teller of a story like this might easily and quickly turn to. Of course, it gets provides an insight into perhaps the many, many stories that we've unfortunately lost because of antiquity. Exactly, exactly that, yes. Uh, but, but Daniel, what is so interesting there, one of the other aspects, because I'd love to mention this now, and you kind of highlighted it earlier, was in this story we also hear of something, of an aspect which seems to be linked with the ancient werewolf, which is ghosts. Yes, indeed. So it's a surprising thing, isn't it? Uh, Well, in some ways it's surprising, in some ways it isn't. Again, if you think about the modern horror repertoire, in fact, ghosts and werewolves and vampires, they all belong together. You know, they all live in the same world, don't they? You know, you pay for your cinema ticket to go see a Hammer horror movie, and you know you want to see one or more of these things together. But yeah, so this story does seem to tie werewolves and ghosts together very strongly. Because obviously the transformation happens in a graveyard. And once Nicaros has seen the transformation, he imagines himself to be assailed by ghosts on all sides. So he's making that fundamental connection himself. And it's possible, actually. Uh, Again, it's a kind of dodgy case. It's a very good story, but we possibly do have a case of a werewolf who is dead. Now we think, well, ghosts are dead. Vampires, I guess, are kind of dead or undead. But werewolves are living, aren't they, for us? Werewolves are live things. But in the ancient world, probably they could be living or dead. And the story to tell here is the story of the hero of Temesa. Again, you mentioned this already yourself. So there are different accounts of it. But if I can sort of just draw them together, what seems to have happened is that one of Odysseus's men, Polites, um, when Odysseus on his travels back, his circuitous travels back home, called in in southern Italy at a place called Temesa. His crewman, Polites, raped a local girl, and therefore the locals stoned him to death appropriately. But unfortunately, his ghost came back. His ghost was a very terrible ghost, not at all happy about the treatment he'd just received. And it was a marauding ghost that would seize and destroy people randomly. Eventually, they sort of came to a sort of an accommodation with the ghost, whereby the ghost had a sort of cult, Polites had a cult, and they would offer to him the prettiest girl they had every year. I guess they had a beauty contest. Not so much of a first prize, though. <laughs> and they would give it to him. Now, it's not entirely clear what giving her to him consisted of. And again, well, this is all myth anyway. <laughs> uh, possibly the idea was that she was just sort of giving to him. And he had a kind of droit de seigneur that he deflowered the girl and then she was sent off again. Or, and this does seem to be one strand in the story, he basically ate her killed her and or ate her. 
And ultimately, the hero in both senses of the word, Euthymus, comes along, Euthymus of Lockery, falls in love with the girl who is about to be given to the so-called hero of Temesa and decides to go up against the hero and, we're told, chases him into the sea. And that's the end of the hero. What's so interesting about all this, you might be saying, where are the werewolves? Where are the werewolves? The hero is described as a demon, a daimon, which can mean ghost. He's also described as a phasma, I think. But anyway, he's a ghost in a wolf skin. Now, I don't think that means, you know, he's just wearing a wolf skin as a fashion choice. He is basically inside a wolf skin. So he is, I think, he is a dead werewolf. And that's maybe a bit strange for your listeners to think that werewolves could be dead. But it would be less weird if, if you have any listeners in the Balkans, in places like Greece or Bulgaria, where they have the Vricola Cas, and the Vricola Cas is variously interpreted, this famous monster terror they have is variously interpreted as either a vampire or as a werewolf. So there is that sort of notion of the dead werewolf, I think, in that part of Europe still today. Is that one of the really interesting things of studying this this, this ancient werewolves, as it were, um, trying to look at what the text that we have surviving and trying to think, could this be a werewolf or is this something else? What is this, what is this creature that's mentioned? Yeah, well, of course, I suppose... <laughs> The philosophically minded might want to approach these texts with the definition of a, of a werewolf in their mind. I've tried to keep quite an open mind about it, and uh, I'm happy to consider anybody that changes into a, you know, from, from between human and wolf form as a potential example. I suppose it might be different if we have somebody who's turning into a whole range of different animal forms. You might say, well, he's not a werewolf, is he? But the stories I'm talking about, that is the transformation. I mean, you might say, what's well, special about wolves? Why change into a wolf? Why, why single out that animal to change into? Well, I think there's a number of reasons. First of all, I think a wolf, I mean, I suppose wolves, even European grey wolves of yesteryear, probably a little bit smaller than an adult person. But they are, they're kind of in the ballpark of our size. It's not such a stretch, as it were, to think of the same bulk of person being transferred into a wolf. So there is that sort of fellowship in a strange way. Wolves are often, of course, said to be sort of the iconic wild creature, you know, the most savage, cruel, wild creature. So already you're setting up that antithesis between the civilised human and the wild, fierce, cruel, flesh-eating, you know, whatever, even man-eating animal. So they make a nice sort of, there's a nice polarity there that one can think about. However, I don't think it's as simple as that, because as, as I'm sure most of your listeners will know, wolves in themselves are actually the most civilised of animals, the most social of animals, and in many ways the most human of animals. Of course, they they gave us our doggies. Uh, And again, if you look at a wolf pack in a zoo or any of the documentaries on the telly, it's a very different story that these guys are not horrors. They are wonderful, really, wonderful, delightful, little ideal societies. And so actually I think the reason the the wolf is chosen as for this privileged role in this sort of folkloric idea is actually because the wolf already in itself is a kind of werewolf, because it, it already embodies the wildness on the one hand and the civilization on the other. Well, that's my guess. That is all so interesting in itself. I mean, we've talked recently about, obviously, this Greek myth, the hero of Temesa. We talked about the werewolf and ghosts. But the other folkloric context, which I know you highlight a lot in your book, which I'd love to go on to now, and keeping on Greek mythology in particular, is the idea of witchcraft. And perhaps we may even see an example as early as the Odyssey and the story of Circe. 
Yes. Well, again, those of your listeners who uh, know a bit of Greek mythology will probably be familiar with the famous uh, Circe episode. And what Circe does is, of course, change Odysseus's men into pigs. But when Odysseus's men first approach her house, they find it surrounded by seemingly tame wolves and lions. Wolves are mentioned first. Again, so that we're, we're hearing the story through the mouth of one of Odysseus's sailors. And he presumes that somehow they'd been bewitched. So that, that leaves it vague in a way. And people do debate about whether these are wild creatures that Circe has magically tamed to be her pets. Or whether they are, just like Odysseus's crewmen are about to be, human sailors who've arrived at the island and she's arbitrarily changed them into these other animals, in which case they, they, you know, they're, they're getting into the werewolf frame, as it were. Now, although scholars debate it, in fact, if one reads Homer carefully and reads on a bit further into the, the description of the episode, it is quite clear that Homer's view, whoever Homer was, is that they are precisely that they are human beings who have been transformed. So it then becomes very interesting that, as it were, that the first creature that we learn of Circe transforming, the first one that's mentioned, is a wolf. And one begins to think, well, why is the wolf first? Well, perhaps because people are already familiar with the idea that witches will turn people into wolves. So if Homer's, let's say, 8th or 7th century BC, Mm. and this is in regard to Circe changing people into wolves, it's not whether it actually happened or not, it's the fact that this is in their imagination that far back. Of course. Yeah, sure. And so going on from that, we've talked about mythology, let's go on to actual history itself and the father of history, at least in the ancient Mediterranean world, Herodotus, because he mentions a case as well, doesn't he? Yes, it's very interesting, although there's not much there. It's a killer reference for werewolves, but unfortunately it's frustratingly succinct. And he just talks about the people called the Neuri, who are associated with the Scythians, and he, he says that they're wizards, goetes is the word he uses, which we normally translate as wizard, and that every so often they turn into wolves. And it's implied back. So brief as it is, and frustratingly underexplained as it is, that's a very clear statement of of werewolfism, and it's such a shame that it doesn't tell us any more about them. But it's so interesting how, and it even seems to be just that one word, goertes, which can give it that clear link to to sorcery, to to magic that we talked about earlier. Yeah. Okay, well, let's move on then from that, from Herodotus and Greek history. So let's then go on to the Roman stuff, our next example. And this is, forgive me if my time's wrong, but this is late Republican Rome and in Virgil's text, because that's when we, we next hear possibly of another reference to the werewolf. Right, yes. Again, it's very succinct. This is Moiris. Yeah, so in Virgil's Eclogues, we just hear of Moiris, who I assume he's a male sorcerer. I mean, the name Moiris is ambiguous. Could be a female name in terms of its form. I just noticed the other day, I, f- I forget where it was, that uh, some scholar or other had assumed that Moiris was a female, was a witch. But uh, the reason I think Moiris is male is because Virgil uses the name Moiris elsewhere in the Eclogues for clearly a different person, but that person is male. So I think it would be rather weird if, if uh, Virgil was flipping genders on the same name within the same work of uh, work of poetry, as it were. So we're just told that he uses herbs, uh, he can call up ghosts, and he can turn himself into a wolf. So, uh, again, it's a passing reference. There are many sort of what what I tend to call thumbnail descriptions of witches and their powers in ancient Roman poetry. 
less so wizards, but this is kind of like a parallel thumbnail description of a wizard and his powers. And it's nice to have it there. So these are basically you know, so the use of herbs, uh, as a witch would use for that matter, um, for various effects. Uh, the calling up of ghosts, the manipulation of ghosts, again, for various magical effects. And right in there with, with these, you might say, these basic elements of the magical repertoire is turning into a wolf. So although, it's, again, it's a very brief passing reference, but it's a, it's a very kind of informative one for the way the werewolf fits into the ancient Roman imagination at that point. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds, and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest, and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday, and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini, to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds, and the Paranormal, wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Just before we move on to like the Imperial Roman time and the werewolf at that time, we talked about these examples, but the whole perception of the werewolf by the ancients, do we have any idea of how the ancients perceived the werewolf, i.e. what parts of this animal were human elements, what parts were the lupine elements, was this the inside, the outside, what do we know? Well, what does seem to be consistent is that the ancients visualised the werewolf as one creature inside another. So we're talking like, like a Russian doll. But what's interesting is that they didn't have a consistent view as to which creature was the outside creature and which one's the inside creature. Or, you might say, the real creature and which is the false creature. That's not a discussion we have. So, well, let's talk about a couple of the examples that we've, we've already mentioned. That makes it clearest. So, Petronius's story, the werewolf, the soldier taking his clothes off, laying them down. And of course, even though it's not elaborated in the story, it's, it's obvious what he's doing. So he pees round his clothes and turns them to stone, clearly to protect them, to preserve them, and so that he can recover them and recover his human form. So with that story, the clothes themselves are kind of like identified with the outer human skin. Of course, the clothes are emblematic of civilization and humanity. So he takes his clothes off, and the wolf is revealed, as it were, inside. And then if we go back to the other example that we mentioned, I mean, the hero of Temesa, again, he's described as a daimon in our wolf skin. So the daimon presumably is kind of like the continuation of the, the humanoid ghost, Polites, and the wolf skin, as it were, is on the outside there. So those are both ways of thinking about a werewolf in the ancient world. I can't help but mention here one of the early medieval stories, Again, there's a big gap in our evidence from after Augustine, around about 400 AD, until the 12th century AD, uh, when we get a, a wonderful flowering anew of werewolf stories. And one of these stories is an Irish story about the werewolves of Ossery. And in that, a friendly werewolf, again, he's subject to a curse. The friendly werewolf, I should say, is, is in wolf form, but he's talking. 
and he asks a priest to give his wife, who's also in wolf form, the last rites. And the priest says, no, I can't do that. You know, it's not allowed to give the last rites to an animal. And the werewolf man, as it were, nuzzles back the fur of his dying wife to show that there's a woman inside the wolf skin. For some reason, the wolf skin can't be taken off completely, but it can be pulled back a bit to show that there's a human woman inside it. Anyway, so the priest relents and gives uh, the dying lady werewolf the last rites. But he still gets in trouble for that with the Pope <laughs> in the end. But again, that's a nice idea. And again, very, very clearly expressed version of the idea that a werewolf is a, a human inside a wolf skin. And forgive me if I'm barking at the wrong tree, but this is something that really caught my eye when reading your book. The hairy heart. Right. Is this in relation to this too? Well, again, you know, I think it's only fair to your listeners to issue a caveat here. It may be that this isn't really to do with werewolves, but I think it's it's certainly, um, shall I say, a parallel way of thinking, even if it's not to do with werewolves. Uh, and so another favourite of mine from uh, Greek mythology is Aristomenes of Messini. Now, he's a really, really interesting guy, and he deserves to be a lot more famous than he is. I mean, it's his misfortune that his great story is not told in something like Homer or a tragedy, but actually in Pausanias, who... Again, your listeners may know, is the, the author of basically a, a sort of tourist guide to Greece. Not exactly the place where you might expect to find a good story like this. But when Pausanias wants to do his guide for Messenia, this is his fourth book, he finds actually that Messenia doesn't have a whole lot of monuments that he can talk about. And so he fills that book with something else, which is, you might say, a mythological monument, which is the story of Aristomenes, which is Aristomenes is kind of like the Robin Hood. Both the King Arthur and the Robin Hood of Messenia. So, uh, very interesting guy. And in his, in his most distinctive episode, he's captured by the Spartans. We're in the age where Messenia is uh, constantly at war with Sparta. And eventually Sparta will conquer Messenia and enslave the population. But Aristomenes is the great resistance hero before that finally happens. He's captured by the Spartans at one point, And they decide to execute him by throwing him, along with a lot of other captured warriors down a crevasse, which they call the Kyadas, down this sort of deep hole. I guess it must be uh, over near Mount Taygetus or something, above Sparta. So they do this. But as he's descending, an eagle, we're told, Zeus's eagle, appears from somewhere, swoops underneath him, and bears him gently down to the bottom, therefore saving his life. Now, we're also told in other contexts that Aristomenes has an eagle blazon on his shield, well, we're told he was thrown down with his arms. So my theory actually is that, again, in a fuller version of this story, it was actually his own shield, a legal image from his shield that sort of became reified and saved him. Anyway, so he's at the bottom of the ravine, but he's still trapped. So he's going to die anyway. And there he is, trapped amongst all these mouldering bodies. And uh, so, you know, so he lies down there and just sort of waits to die anyway. But then he notices a fox has somehow got in. And this, uh, you know, making the most of the corpses <laughs> there. And Aristomenes realises if the fox can get in, it can get out, probably. And that's not completely certain logic, is it? But nonetheless, that's what he reckons. So he grabs hold of the fox's tail because he tries to turn around and bite him. But in the end, it just runs. And uh, Aristomenes is sort of dragged along after it and pulled through the fox's little secret tunnels and eventually escapes from the ravine. So he does have this very strong identification with a canid in his most signal story. But 
when he is finally captured, he's always been captured by the Spartans, but then he always <laughs> escapes, you know, because that's the sort of guy he is. When he's finally captured and killed, they then investigate his body. They notice there's something special about him, something different about him, and they cut him open and they discover that he has a hairy heart. That is not explained any further. It's very frustrating. What does it mean to have a hairy heart? But the Fox story aside, there's quite a lot of wolf imagery in other parts of Aristomenes' story. I think there's a notion there that somehow or other Aristomenes has this sort of secret element of wolf inside him. And the hairy heart is, as it were, the proof of that. And so, I mean, whether, whether you'd call him a werewolf, I'm not sure. But I think he's getting there. He's getting there. <laughs> and, and, and I think the notion is that his, his wolfiness is what allows him to get away with so many of his sort of uh, secret nighttime raids and things like that. Again, he's, he's, very, he's a very sort of wolfy, wolfy warrior in the way he attacks the Spartans. Now, we've talked about the Greek mythology. We talked about these amazing stories, Herodotus and, and Virgil. And I feel like we're now going on to a, a big topic before we finish it all off, because we're going into the Imperial Roman period alongside Petronius, because it's here that we see, correct me if I'm wrong, but we see werewolves becoming more and more persistently associated with a certain terrible character, the Strix Witch. First of all, what is a Strix Witch? The Strix Witch is herself a Roman phenomenon. She does have affinities in Greek myth and lore, things like Lamias, but basically the Strix Witch is a Roman phenomenon. Now, in summary, what does she do? Typically, she's always a woman. There may be male Strixes later in the medieval period, but certainly in ancient Roman terms, they're women. They're old women. They transform themselves either into owls, and the word Strix actually is supposedly a form of owl. We typically translate it as Screech Owl, but whether it is really tied to a particular variety of owl is, is less clear. They transform into this owl, or they project their souls from their bodies. And in either form, they seek to penetrate domestic houses which have little babies in them. In order to either steal the baby as a whole, to kill it, to drain its blood, to steal its body parts, either openly or, more likely, surreptitiously, somehow they can get inside and steal inside parts and disappear. And actually, it's not entirely clear what they're doing with these parts. They're probably by default eating them. And again, they're old women, so probably this is a way of recovering youth. It's possible that they're retaining the body parts for various other magical operations. If you think about Apuleius' novel, uh, we, we get a description of a witch's, not actually a strict witch, but a, a more general witch's laboratory or workshop, the workshop of Pamphili. And again, she's got all these jars with little body parts in, which she's going to use to evoke ghosts the ghosts of the relevant body. So that could be happening too. And there are various ways of protecting against the Strix Witch, including using various plants to guard doorways and windows and to hang around the baby's neck to protect it. So we're very much here, and maybe your listeners are already ahead of me, we're kind of in the world of the vampire here. Um, Strix Witches are not dead. They are living, but they're after blood, and they can be deterred by strategically placed plants, you know, like the garlic in, in Bram Stoker's novel. So, yeah, I should say the Strix Witch is very much uh, an antecedent of the vampire. I mean, it's, it's not really right to call her a vampire, but she's, she's scratching that itch for the ancients um, that uh, the, the vampire scratches for us. So, obviously, she has this iconic and central ability to transform into a, an owl, 
but in these ancient Roman texts, there is a sort of a kind of hint that secondarily they also transform themselves into wolves. Again, it's not entirely clear why, but it's something they can do. But yes, that does sort of bring werewolves and strict witches together a bit. If we then focus on Petronius Satyricon, because we've been using that example already uh, so far, but of course you may use many other brilliant examples in your book on this topic, but it's so interesting how we've talked about the relationship between the werewolf and the ghost in this tale before, but you also mentioned earlier how included in this story are also the strict witches. So in this whole story, it seems like you've got perhaps an ancient equivalent of the vampire, the strict witch, you've got the werewolf, and you've got the ghost elements of it all together. Yes, I should, well, I should say scrupulously that with Petronius we've got two separate stories. As I say, so Trimalchio, oh, okay. yeah, Trimalchio is telling this story of the Strix Witches. And actually that's a good little story itself. It's maybe worth telling briefly. Hmm. So Trimalchio talks about when he himself was a young slave and they had um, a young boy in the house, again, a young slave who had died and he was laid out ready for burial the next day in the house. Uh, and the house was beset by Strix Witches, not one but a whole coven, let's say a coven of them, they couldn't be seen, they were invisible, they just heard the screeching. And perhaps since they couldn't be seen, these are soul-projecting strict switches. Now you might think that a soul can pass through any little crack in a house or any little keyhole or anything, but what's interesting is that the witches trick the householders into opening the door. Basically there's a sort of big lunking slave called a Paphlagonian, described as a Paphlagonian I should say, in the house, and he runs out and manages actually to kill one of the witches. Again, we hear a scream, but we still don't see her. And then he returns, but the other witches have got to him and they're giving him a magical beating. So he's sort of black and blue, and he's raving mad. So he raves in his bed for a few days and then dies. So that's the witch's revenge on him. But clearly, also, because he opened the door to go out and attack them, that's how the witches got in. And when the householders finished fussing around the Paphlagonian, and they return to the dead boy, he's gone. And he's been replaced by a sort of straw dummy. Somehow, the witches have managed to infiltrate into the house. So again, it's a very sinister, very creepy story, even though it's sort of told for laughs in a way. So that is a separate story to the world story. But, as I say, it's like, you know, which film are you going to watch other than Hammer Horror Double Bill? These creatures still belong in the same general story world, even if they're not quite brought together in the same story. That's going to be the next thing. I mean, forgive me, I was just thinking of an ancient being human episode, to be honest, but that's why I remember growing up watching those films with the vampire, the werewolf and the ghost all living together in the same same house. You mentioned story right there because that was what I wanted to really aim at next because this is an extraordinary series of stories that we've talked about so far in this podcast. And this idea of the story, I mean, what context do you think these stories were told in antiquity? Well, that is a good question. I mean, I think probably stories were told everywhere. But if we look at, again, look at ancient texts, we can see that, as it were, them describing themselves the sorts of context in which stories like this might be told. Now, I've already been talking so much about Petronius. Let's go back to that. And so these are a pair of stories told at a dinner party. Um, and again, it's kind of, kind of a strange posh dinner party, even though the people in it aren't posh. But one can well imagine that any uh, dinner party as it gets late at night these sorts of stories might come out. Let me revert to that phrase once more, campfire horror, you know. And if we go back to Apuleius's novel, there's a fantastic story about uh, witches, not exactly strict witches, but they're very similar and they, they plunder people for body parts. There's a wonderful story told 
writing the first book of, uh, of that novel. And it's told between travellers on the road. And you know, one can see, these, yeah, these are stories of the road. These are stories to, as it were, to lighten the journey, aren't they? And another thing that's worth saying is that a lot of these weird stories involve innkeepers. I mentioned that Melissa and her husband kept an inn. And again, the witches in, in this first book of, of our place, they're, again, they're innkeepers too. The fact that the innkeepers keep coming round like this in, in these weird and wonderful stories preserved from the ancient world rather suggests to me that actually the inn, the tavern, is a place where you tell these stories. And I think that's why they're included. Um, that's why they're a recurring theme. But again, that's, that's stories of the road, isn't it? But there are other contexts too. You might say more formal contexts in which stories of this sort are preserved. What is clear more generally in the ancient world is that temples served as museums uh, in all sorts of ways. But museums both of things and museums of stories too, I think. Often stories attached to things in the museum, or in the temple rather. So for example, Herodotus, whom you mentioned before, has all sorts of wonderful weird stories to tell about Samos. And what's interesting about these stories, he has five or six stories about the island of Samos. What's interesting is that each one of them features an object which somehow or other ended up on display in the great temple of Hera there. And so what becomes apparent is that Herodotus has had the tour of the temple and, uh, and a, an old trusty temple warden has taken him round, you know, looking at the walls and all the displays and told him the story that attaches to each object. And these are the stories that Herodotus is, is giving us in turn. Oh, by the way, um, also in, I think it's the, the, the Horion at Samos, but certainly some temple somewhere, they found some nice, not exactly dinosaur bones, but, you know, prehistoric, uh, you know, mega beast bones, like a Miocene giraffe or something like that. That was actually in the ruins of the temple. So clearly, you, know, you can see what's going on there. Somebody's found these amazing bones. They've taken them to the temple and that's where they're on display. And of course, a wonderful story will have been spun around them. You know, this is the dragon that so-and-so slew or whatever. And, you know, uh, so temples in the ancient world were really fascinating places, I think. Locuses for storytelling. And, you know, just broadening that out, you know, the great Panhellenic shrines like Olympia too. Um, Pausanias, again, has lots of weird and wonderful stories about different great athletes from the past. And these seem to have been attached to, I mean, not physically attached, but attached to statues and monuments for these athletes that he's seen at Olympia. So again, I think, again, the local temple warden, uh, well, temple wardens, there would have been thousands of them, uh, have been sort of, you know, pumping up the tourists uh, with all these great stories. David, just listening to that, and all that we've been chatting about for the last 40 minutes or so, all these different examples, I know there are more. I shan't mention the Arcadian Lucaya Festival, which seems really interesting in itself. But it just seems that... From an outside, the whole topic of wells and H-World, it must have been so fun to research. Well, yes, it was, yes. I mean, as I kind of indicated to start with, I didn't really do it in one big blob. You know what I mean? It's just stuff I sort of acquired along the way for the most part, you know, and just sort of salted it away. So, yeah, there wasn't any, like, one big reveal moment. But, uh, yeah, obviously, it's fascinating. Well, Daniel... Go on then, I've got to ask, because my brain is telling me you've got to ask about it. Because I mentioned it just then, the Arcadian Lucaya Festival. Right. I mean, just a brief overview before we finish. I mean, what exactly is it, and does it have a link to, to werewolves? Well, it's very plainly and centrally about werewolves, although in what way in the end is a bit baffling. Okay, so as part of the rites of Zeus Lycaios, which means wolfy, well, the name can be construed as meaning wolfy Zeus, 
on Mount Lycaon, which can be construed as meaning Wolfy Mountain. <laughs> um, at the Festival of Lycaia, which can be construed as meaning the Wolf Festival. Um, certain young men of the Arcadians, don't know how many, would hang their clothes on a tree, take their clothes off, hang them on a tree, so again, we know, we know what territory we're in here already, swim across a pond, and then emerge on the other side of the pond as wolves, and live as wolves for a certain period. Again, I think the ancient evidence for this is all a bit mixed up, so I'm not going to get into that, but I would suggest probably one or two years. Uh, they then return across the pond and recover their clothes and their humanity, and then go on, as it were, to live their lives as, as, as humans. So this is all part of a rite of, of, of Wolfie's use. And the way it's spoken about in Pausanias and other sources, Pliny talks about it. It's all a bit odd, but certainly the ancients seem to believe that this rite was practised at least at one point. Now, you're going to say, assuming that men cannot really turn into wolves, what actually happened? Well, the way it's normally construed is that this is a, a rite of passage. Because we have a number of phenomena in other ancient Greek societies whereby um, the younger men, so-called ephebes, between the ages of 18, 20, something like that, undergo a period of, again, this is sort of anthropologist talk, ritual marginalisation, whereby typically they serve as light-armed sort of stealth warriors in the wild areas, um, the boundary areas of the state. So, for example, the Athenian so-called ephebes would patrol the outer boundaries of the state with light arms. In Sparta, you had this thing called the Cryptea, the secret force, the hidden force, and it was the job of the boys in the Cryptea secretly to murder the serfs who were causing trouble. Sparta's you know, serf population. Um, again, so stealthily, by night, secret stuff. And then when they emerge from this period of ritual marginalisation, they're then integrated back into society as full adults, and as like heavy-armed, fully-armed warriors. So it's possible that this rite is a similar thing. So what is going on is that the youths are, as it were, symbolically going off to spend this two years as these sort of light-armed patrolling warriors before coming back and being fully reintegrated into the state as adults. Now, what I would say is that that is a, an example of the metaphorical use of the idea of the werewolf. I'm convinced that the idea of the werewolf is, is much more ancient than ancient Greece and is deeply embedded, and that that is, a, as it were, again, a, a handy metaphorical use of the idea. But many other people would say, when they look at ancient werewolves, they would say, they would start with that, because somehow somehow the, the evidence for the Lycaia festival seems to be the most tangible. They, they will often start with that and say, oh, well, the whole concept of the werewolf in ancient Greece, in the ancient world, even maybe in Europe generally, is a product of a rite of passage. There is a, some association between rites of passage and werewolfism in, in the early modern period, it must be said. But I, I have to say, I don't think that's the key. I think they're getting it the wrong way around. I think the folklore comes first. The folklore structures the way you think about a rite of passage, not vice versa. Well, there we go. Folklore is first. And I love the idea that werewolves, the idea of werewolves is more ancient than ancient Greece too. Uh, Daniel, this has been an absolutely brilliant chat. Just before we go, your new book on this topic is called... The Werewolf in the Ancient World. There we go. Daniel, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Thank you. It's been great fun.
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.